From 11FS, this is FinTech Insider News. This week we bring you Ant Group and the biggest IPO of all time, cryptocurrency initiatives amongst industry giants PayPal and JP Morgan, and raccoons break into a California bank. All of this and more on today's show. The banking business model is broken. The question is, how can we rebuild it? Embedded Finance presents a massive opportunity for banks to play a new role in the financial services ecosystem, offering more revenue streams, lower costs, and higher margins. Our new report, Better Banking, Business Models, Embedded Finance, and the Path to Growth, is a must-read for banks considering the smartest next step. Head to bit.ly forward slash banking as a service to download the report for free. That's bit.ly forward slash banking as a service all one word and all lowercase. Okay, let's start today's show. Welcome to episode 475 of Fintech Insider. I'm Ross Gallagher and today I'm joined by my colleague and co-host for today, Simon Taylor. How are you doing, Si? Really well, thank you. I've been having all the fun in the world with some uh, some exciting stuff that we can't talk about yet. It feels like fintech is really, really having its moment, and uh, yeah, I'm in, I'm in a very excited mood as well because we've got some phenomenal guests with us this week. Ross, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm very well. Um, totally, totally agree. Lots of exciting stuff going on, and like you said, some wonderful guests. So let's get to introducing them. First up, uh, making their FinTech Insider News debut, we have Claire Gambarellas, Chief Customer Officer at Zopa. Welcome to the show, Claire. Great to have you. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. Excellent. And making a very welcome return, we have Chris Skinner, um, author, speaker, CEO of The Financer and all-round fintech guru. Uh, Chris, welcome back to the show. Great to have you. Been too long when we did Fintech Insider number one. I was there and uh, I've missed it. 475 later. I mean, you've been on a few since then, but 475 later, who'd have thought this thing's still going, especially uh, given the few of us on the first one? Bigger and better every day. Yeah, and it's great to have a couple of genuine OGs. Um, Okay, awesome. Let's dive in. Um, Our first story comes from CNBC and concerns Ant Group raising $34.5 billion, valuing it at over $313 billion in the biggest IPO of all time. So Ant Group uh, will raise $34.5 billion in its dual initial public offering after setting the price for its shares on Monday, making it the biggest listing of all time. So Ant's valuation based on the pricing will be $313.37 billion. I mean, larger that is larger than some of the biggest banks in the US, including household name brands like Goldman Sachs and Wells Fargo. The Chinese financial technology giant previously said it would split its stock issuance equally across Shanghai and Hong Kong, issuing 1.6 billion new shares in each location, and trading is due to begin in Hong Kong on November 5th. Together, they will sell roughly 3.34 billion shares, which account for 11% of Ant's total outstanding stock. There is also the possibility for the listing figure to go higher, if the so-called over-allotment option is exercised, depending on demand. Um, Chris, I know you've worked closely with Ant and Alibaba and spent quite a lot of time getting to know the Asian fintech scene for your latest book, Doing Digital. Um, 
So it makes sense, I guess, to throw to you first. What can you tell us about this IPO? Uh, how long have you got? <laughs> <laughs> Roughly 12 minutes, according to the show notes. Okay, because I can spend hours talking about Ant Group. I'm a real Ant nerd. Um, and it's basically because uh, when I first started tracking them, it was about six or seven years ago um, when I really you know, got my antennae thinking that this is an interesting company, that basically they were just in China since 2015, they've expanded worldwide. Uh, this valuation and IPO is quite amazing. It's the biggest IPO, the biggest value company of any launch for a debut company in history, bigger than Saudi Aramco. The figures you just gave are already wrong. This morning, they're valued at $37 billion. Uh, when they started talking about the sell-off, it was $25 billion. That was just a month ago. There's a massive scramble to buy into the company. And it's for a whole range of reasons in that they really are changing the game. They started with uh, looking at America and Europe and saying, okay, we're going to be like an Amazon in um, Europe, um, bring that to China, and how can we change it? And they changed the game through Alibaba. And then Alibaba needed a payment system, which was an escrow system like Klarna um, when it started. But now it's also a savings, investments, loans, credit rating vehicle. It's everything in China. And um, in 2011, Jack Ma, who's the chair and founder of Alibaba, said, if the banks won't change, we have to change the banks. And I think this is what we're really seeing is the value of what they're delivering today And that you say that they'll be valued more than Wells Fargo and uh, Goldman Sachs. They're actually going to be valued at a higher level than J.P. Morgan Chase, the most valuable bank in the world. And it's a reflection of what they've achieved. And they've just started. I mean, they're, they're just going back to what we say, one, you know, digital is 1% done. They're 1% done. They're, 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 they're doing the big change in China. When they bring this to the rest of the world, which they are doing, and that they're not just in China, they're also in most of Asia, um, India. They're expanding into Africa, Middle East. They're going global, and they're just an amazing company. Uh, Ross, if I can jump in there, the numbers with this don't stop being staggering. The, there's a, nearly a billion customers of Ant Financial with zero branches. They have near-perfect cross-sell. So 80% of their customers use at least three financial services. They manage about $560 billion in wealth, um, assets under management. And then uh, I think my bank lent to 21 million customers last year. This is an organization that's like a mad mashup of Stripe, PayPal, Apple Pay, Venmo, FICO, and any number of companies you can imagine. And Amazon and eBay. And, and so this this just fundamentally doesn't exist anywhere else, which might explain the scale and scope of what they're doing. But the really impressive thing to me is the fact that they have taken a model that can work elsewhere, which is solve the biggest customer problem first and then monetize from there later on. Um, even, to a certain degree, Square did this with Square Cash or, or, or how they did um, B2B business payments. They, they solved a small problem but didn't try and monetize solving that problem. They found the adjacent problems. And with um, Ant Financial, probably one of the best ones was uh, was 
getting into payments, making it really easy for somebody to buy things online or buy things in person. And by doing that, they got access to the transaction data. By getting access to the transaction data, they understood what credit risk looked like. And by seeing credit risk, then they were able to lend and build their own lending model. That Just a couple of other things, I think, building upon that is that um, when I visited with uh, the Ant Group, um, it was for the book Digital Human, uh, I interviewed most of their C-suite in 2017. And um, I met the head of their systems architect who came from Microsoft. He was um, a sort of a retread, as in someone who was Chinese who left China, went to America and came back from Microsoft to lead the systems architecture within Ant Group. Um, And he explained to me they're on their fifth systems generation architecture. And this is a company that at that time was just 14 years old, and that speaks volumes. At that time, they were processing over 200,000 transactions a second using artificial intelligence for security. In 2019, when they did the uh, Singles Day in November, which is like the Black Friday for China, they were processing over 500,000 transactions per second. To put that in context, Visa processes about 2,000 transactions a second on average globally. So 500,000 transactions per second is absolutely incredible. And I post a lot about Ant Group because from a technological viewpoint, I think they're stunning. And I got some pushback the other day from someone who said, but Jack Ma is a member of the Communist Party and they're Chinese and it's a communist state. You shouldn't write so much about them. And I said, you know what? When you look at the future, um, it's political, economic, social, and technological. I'm just interested in the technological. I understand the political exposures and issues and all of that space. I don't really take it on board in my writing and blogging. I take it on board in my heart and my emotions. It's separate. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. And I mean, you know, the, the, the comparison, Chris, that you quite rightly made between the, the processing um, capacity that, that Anne has sort of demonstrated and, 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 you know, the comparison with Visa. I mean, they've got more active accounts than PayPal are handling far more payments than PayPal last year. I mean, the, 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 the comparisons just go on and on. And I think um, Anne comes out looking good every time. Uh, Claire, what was, what was your thoughts when you, you sort of saw this story? What was your first impression? I mean, I thought it was very interesting. And one of the things that I think is fascinating is the way that this type of service has really collapsed a lot of the boundaries between banking, payments, as you said, and also retail, and provided real value, not only for the merchants, but also for the customer. And I think that that alongside, you know, rapid growth of the internet in some of these high growth markets, uh, obviously, rapid market growth itself, um, has really sort of led to this incredible rise and incredible adoption. I do think it's an interesting question, and we touched on it a little bit uh, with regards to politics, but I, I think there's also an interesting question around kind of consumer privacy and, and data privacy and how much that plays into some people's um, considerations. Because as you've said, this whole concept works by the very smart kind of monetization of, of data and the ability to make credit decisions um, based on a huge, huge amount of um, customer profiling that wouldn't have previously been available to banks. Um, And so I think that that's obviously a trade-off which consumers are making and are happy to make because the experience is is so great for them. But I think it's definitely one that will possibly become more top of mind for some customers in some markets going forward. Yeah, I I totally agree, and um, I think probably Chris, I'm gonna br- I'm gonna bring you in here. I think I know you said that um, 
you don't want to consider it necessarily from a, po- a political um, angle, but I suppose it's it's hard not to, and especially everything that's going on around the IPO itself, um, and listing in Shanghai and Hong Kong in response to threats as part of the ongoing sort of war of of, of words and back and forth between um, China and and the US. How how do you think this is likely to play out and sort of affect and prospects moving forward i suppose especially considering that they make the bulk of their revenue in um, mainland china and, and and sort of it's 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 still unknown how they might be able to you know expand into you know key markets like the us and, and beyond yeah i mean the, 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 there are political tensions as we know between america and china and america uh, under donald trump did block the acquisition of moneygram by uh, alipay on the basis that they might uh, abuse American armed forces data and citizens data. Um, in fact, I was amused. There was a billboard for the Trump campaign in Philadelphia today that said um, that Joe Biden suffered from dementia, um, but they spelt it completely wrong. They spelt it D-I-M-E-N-S-I-A, which actually I liked because I thought that means that Joe Biden understands America and China, dementia, as in Asia. Um and I think that's the key thing, that if you understand both nations, they're very different nations and there's very different agendas. Of course, Tencent and Alibaba and therefore Ant Group do have a Chinese communist regime uh, partnership. Um, that, that is inseparable. You can't say that doesn't exist. But equally, technologically, they have this amazing prowess. And Jack Ma came out the other day, and I think this is a really telling comment, and said that the Basel Accords and the system that Europe and America is operating in finance is like an old person's club. It's you know it doesn't work. It doesn't recognise reaching the unreachable, the things you can do today with technology. He described it as the lakes, streams, rivers, and brooks of finance should reach everywhere through the internet and the systems that we operate and the infrastructure we have with Visa, MasterCard and Swift and everything else that goes with it doesn't, it's not fit for that purpose. And that I think is a critical point that no matter what you think about the, the politics, he's right. You know, technologically we're not leveraging and doing what we can do with digital effectively in the 21st century and China's doing it effectively. Yeah. And, and Simon, I think Jack Ma's a really, um, Really interesting character. His company, of course, Alibaba, has agreed to 730 million A shares. So that's going to allow it to maintain its roughly 33% stake. And um, his shares alone are reportedly worth 17 billion, which is going to take his net worth north of 80 billion and confirm him as, as China's richest man. I mean, what can you even say about that? They're incredible. I mean, I mean good for him. But I don't think any of that takes away from the achievement from the organization's perspective. Yes, they happen to be in a country that some people have some challenges with. Yes, they happen to be able to do things with data that maybe some of the places it's a little bit harder to do. Yes, they happen to have benefited from a phenomenal rise of a you know once in a generation rise of a nation. Still, even if you strip all of that away, go look at how they've done what they've done. It's still incredible. There are still so many lessons to learn. And there's um, probably just case studies upon case studies on the internet that you can learn from in your own business by just watching the greats. You know, I, I put it to uh, almost like uh, Olympic athletes. If they've been tested and you know they're clean and they've gone to the Olympics and done something amazing, does it matter where they came from? The individual has done extremely well. So hopefully we can learn from them. 
Yeah, and like you said, I mean the the, the country's done incredibly well. Um, you know, when you look at the last um, the the four of the world's five five largest IPOs are all Chinese companies. Um, we've yeah, I'll just build on that, Ross, because um, Ant Group has uh, an Alibaba Group has more blockchain patents filed than any other company in the world. China has more blockchain patents filed than any other country in the world. It's not just distributed ledger and blockchain. It's um, everything from artificial intelligence through to mobile super apps. If you ignore that, then you're stupid. Yeah, completely agree. And um, it's actually a really nice segue, Chris, into our next story. So I'm going to move us on. Uh, so this next story uh, comes from a combination of Reuters and CNBC. I can already see Simon getting excited and shifting in his chair. Um, concerns PayPal allowing cryptocurrency on their platform and JP Morgan creating a new unit for blockchain projects. So PayPal said they will allow customers to hold Bitcoin and other virtual coins in its online wallets and be able to shop using cryptocurrencies at the 26 million merchants on the PayPal network. This makes PayPal one of the largest UK companies to provide consumers access to cryptocurrencies, and this could help digital currencies gain wider adoption as viable payment options. The service will be available from early next year. Meanwhile, JP Morgan Chase said its digital currency, JPM Coin, is being used commercially for the first time this week by a large technology client to send payments around the world. This development, along with other unknown moves, persuaded JP Morgan to create a new business to house its blockchain and digital currency called Onyx. So Simon, as our resident uh, crypto expert, let's come to you uh, first on this. What are, your, what are your thoughts on this one? First of all, I prefer crypto nerd. I don't think anybody can be an expert in this subject, but I'll, I'll take that as a kind compliment from producer Laura. Thank you. Um, there's two things here. So let's try and unpack the first one first. PayPal, really interesting that they are now very much competing with Square Cash, right? And Square Cash has had Bitcoin available in Square Cash for quite some time. And not only that, it's been tremendously popular as an engagement tool, and it's generated an awful lot of revenues for Square that they've been putting in their public filings. So there's a little bit of keeping up with the Joneses going on here. They kind of have to do it because Square did such a good job at it. Um, the, the second piece about um, 26 million merchants accepting Bitcoin, that one I'm a little bit less convinced on. Now, why would I spend Bitcoin if it's like gold? I really tend to hoard this stuff because the price goes up. In the same week, Coinbase have launched their debit card in the US, and it's essentially a, a, a like a challenger bank card. It's a neobank, but you can use it, you can top it up, you can spend it every day. But their rewards mechanism gives you tiny bits of Bitcoin. Now, that's interesting because if I gave you air miles, typically air miles work by breakage. You probably won't use them. And if you do, the redemption value is less than you got them for. If I give you something like Bitcoin, actually, there's a good chance that that price may go up over time. Now, one of the things people always throw at Bitcoin is, oh, but it's for, you know, it's rat poison squared and it's um, Jimmy Diamond said he would fire anybody that ever caught, caught trading Bitcoin. Look at the world we're in where Bitcoin is now low-key, kind of legitimate. It's kind of there as one of the investable tradable assets. Isn't that interesting? So I'll leave you with that thought, and then maybe we can unpack that with some of the other guests and come back to the JP Morgan thing, because I think it's a slightly different thing. Yeah, well, Chris, I was going to, um, I suppose, throw Simon's point to you about some of the volatility around um cryptocurrencies that we know and the risks that that will naturally pose both to to merchants and to consumers 
Um, I think PayPal believes that it's addressing this as they're going to be settling transactions in um, traditional currencies like the US dollar. Um, I just wonder what your uh, your thoughts on that particular point were. Um, I mean, I find it interesting the way in which PayPal and Square have widened their proposition because it's really down to what the customer wants, and that's what it comes down to. You know, what do the customers want to trade in, and how do they want to trade? And if the merchants don't want to accept that form of payment, then the merchant loses business. That's the merchant's choice. At the same time, there's been some interesting movements around moving cryptocurrencies, particularly Bitcoin, but also Ethereum, Ether, uh, and others into treasury operations, for example. So MicroStrategy put over $400 million of Bitcoin into their cash reserves. um, And Mode, a UK startup that I'm involved with, put over 10% of their treasury cash reserves into Bitcoin. And I think that's also an interesting move because it kind of brings a respectability to what has been irrespectable. And to Simon's point about Jamie Dimon saying anyone who trades in Bitcoin will get sacked. Now JPM Coin exists. But JPM Coin is very much for JPM USA to pay out to JPM Germany, JPM UK, JPM Australia, or wherever. It's an internal mechanism for avoiding the overheads of the traditional networks. Um, so it's not really cryptocurrency per se. And I think the core point here is um, I'm not a fan of DeFi, decentralized finance. And the reason I'm not a fan of DeFi is that I think there has to be governance. And to say that the governance is through the network by the people sounds like a really great aspirational idea. But in reality, if you don't have some form of oversight from some form of government, it becomes anarchy. And I've said this for over a decade, ever since I encountered the libertarians versus the status. I'm talked about as a statist, uh, as in I'm you know a big supporter of government. Um, I'm not a supporter of government as in you know the US government or the UK government or the European Union. I'm a supporter of government to make sure the system works. Yeah, nice. And um, I think, Chris, you've raised... Um, a handful of really interesting points there. Claire, I'm really interested to get your, um, I guess, consumer-focused lens. And I, I think Chris Chris raised a really interesting point about maybe this being sort of customer-led. And um, I, I wonder if, 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 in your perspective, this is some signs that, that crypto is starting to go mainstream. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really interesting question. And I think that there will be a percentage of, and there is a percentage of uh, people for whom crypto is really interesting. There's obviously a huge group of people because of the volatility, for example, at the moment that it probably isn't. I think that the uh, PayPal move will probably benefit crypto in the sense of not only making it much more uh, accessible. So, uh, you know, not only by allowing people to spend it in more places and to access it through, you know, a very well-known and highly trusted brand, which will probably have some sort of, uh, I guess, introductory value or reassurance value for some consumers. Um, I also think that for PayPal, and we touched on this a little bit earlier, there's probably some reputational benefit as well, because it is seen to be uh, taking on 
you know, an, an asset which is innovative. And as you said, I mean, some of the other challenges out there have already started to do that, whether it's Square. I think Revolut was also doing some some uh, some interesting stuff within that space as well. So I think that there is a little bit of kind of keeping up and moving along with customer demand, but probably for quite a small segment at the time being. And I'm not sure that that's going to scale that quickly. Um, but I think it is probably important for them to make sure that they are there for early adopters and also helping to push this forward if it is going to be something which becomes more widespread. Nice. No, I totally agree. And I think it comes back to that, maybe Chris's point about respectability. But Simon, this isn't the first time that big established brands have tried to do something in this space. And of course, I'm talking about the Facebook-led um, Libra project, I guess. Could you just give us a couple of final thoughts on how this is different and, and why this might actually succeed where, where Libra failed. Yeah, Libra was the most terrifying thing to a government you can imagine, which is the big tech that we're worried about um, might be overthrowing democracy is also going to create its own currency and, and kind of get us away. So actually, when compared to that, Bitcoin suddenly looks a lot less scary because it started to resemble digital gold. And if you see it like gold as a possible thing that you could invest in that may go up or down and might make a sensible part of a portfolio if you've taken the relevant uh, investment advice, that's actually probably a decent position for it. But it also has this other thing. It also has this thing where it creates engagement. There's a reason Robinhood added it. There's a reason Revolut added it. There's a reason PayPal have now added it, which people are just interested in it. Younger people are just interested in this idea that there's this future thing that we could be a part of and that finance could be better. And that in itself is a powerful narrative to think about when thinking of consumer perception. The last thing I'll leave you with is that... Um, DBS in Singapore has launched its own crypto exchange. Uh, and indeed, at the same time, about a, couple, about a month ago, the US's OCC announced that banks can now hold crypto. This is definitely a different world to where we were five years ago when it was like DLT good, crypto bad. The world has fundamentally changed. And I think recognizing that, that yes, we absolutely still need consumer protections, never um, never invest anything you can't afford to lose in crypto for the love of God, people. But at the same time, done sensibly with the right consumer controls, in many cases, Bitcoin is less volatile. Like the US dollar in against gold and against Bitcoin has dropped about 20% this year. Bitcoin versus gold is almost rock solid. So Bitcoin looks volatile if you measure it in dollars, but actually, if you look at it versus gold or other assets, it's not that volatile anymore. It's, it's, I think this perception needs to shift a little bit. And that's, that's interesting in itself. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think, you know, the, the Libra project probably jilted some of the regulators, gave them a bit of a wake-up call. I think some central banks now are looking at rolling out their own digital currencies and um, PayPal. CBDCs, here we come. Um, yeah. the, China has the the uh, digital currency electronic payment program, which is super interesting, which is designed to replace cash. And there's a whole podcast in, in what that could mean at some point, I'm sure. I was just going to say, it's also just interesting that um, where Libra is today, it looks far more like PayPal than it did when it started. Yeah. No, exactly. And that's actually a really nice point um, to end on that one. So I'm going to take us through to the break. This episode of Fintech Insider is brought to you by MyTech. Combining the world's best forensic experts with the industry's most advanced technology, only MyTech delivers banking-grade identity verification with the highest possible assurance levels, massively reducing risk, fraud, and costs. Discover more at mytechsystems.com. This episode is also brought to you by Jack Henry Digital, the pioneers of personal digital banking. 
They're reviving the vision of financial institutions being on a first name basis with customers by offering a platform for personal, human-centered service that puts the customer first. Your customers experience immediate accessibility while your employees get cloud-based, core-connected tools to offer service at the moment of need. To learn more, explore the team's latest insights at jackhenrydigital.com. We love making podcasts at 11FS, and this definitely isn't our only one. If you haven't checked out our sister podcast, InsureTech Insider, then you are missing out because we've published some of our best ever episodes over the past few months. From the future of work to the biggest industry InsureTech news, there's a topic in there for anyone who wants to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Head to ii.11fs.com to start listening or just search InsureTech Insider on your podcast provider. Thanks and on with the show. This story comes from The Australian and concerns Afterpay teaming up with Westpac to offer a savings account for Australians. So Afterpay has teamed up with Westpac to launch the Buy Now Pay Later Providers First savings account in Australia, which it says will be a banking product for budget-focused consumers. Afterpay are partnering with Westpac to use the major bank's new digital bank-as-a-service platform to set up a savings account and cash management product. The savings account facilitated through Westpac would allow Afterpay's customer base to manage funds through one service, including paying bills, withdrawing cash and budgeting. It will also allow customers to set savings goals and be rewarded for good savings behaviours. The product is expected to be available from July 2021. And controversially, in the same week, Westpac sold its stake in Afterpay's rival firm, Zip. Uh, So Claire, I'm, I'm keen to bring you in first on this one. Um, how do you think customers are going to take to this, and particularly, I suppose, Afterpay's existing buy now, pay later customers? Do you feel like this is something that's going to appeal to them? I mean, I think they obviously have a very large customer base, so this move makes a lot of sense in terms of being able to cross-sell more products and drive even more engagement. I think that the critical piece comes down to the experience that the majority of customers have. Uh, the way that buy now, pay later obviously works is is very seamless. But as you know, generally, it tends to be zero interest. And where companies make their money is through late fees, for example, or, or increases in borrowing. And so I think that the problem with that is that a high percentage of customers are often uh, surprised by those charges. They don't really understand necessarily, uh, in some cases, what they're signing up to at, at the beginning. And so I think that the question is, do customers have the trust uh, in these types of companies to move over into products, especially savings, where there is obviously a very large sort of personal commitment uh, in the company? And, you know, people are looking often for reassurance, like, for example, the FSCS uh, stamp. So that, I think, will be really key to uh, understanding the sentiment of this customer base and, and actually how far can the brand stretch in moving into some of those adjacent product uh, markets. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think, you know, when you, when you listen to the um, Anthony uh, Eisen, the Afterpay chief executive, he sees this very much as sort of complementary and sort of building out um, additional value add on top of obviously what he sees is already adding massive value to um, certainly a particular segment of customers. Chris, we, I, I guess, sort of buy now, pay later propositions come up on, on the show more and more these days. And there's always a debate around, you know, some of the risks, I think, that Claire's just 
just spoken about versus some of the potential benefits. Um, where, where do you come down on these types of products? I think there's a couple of points. Um, so Klarna's done a very good job of building a business based on buy now, pay later. They were one of the f- f- early entrants into this space back in 2005 and featured in my book, Value Web, just mentioning it. Um, and then, you know, when we, t- we talked about Ant Group earlier, Ant Group started as Alibaba's buy now, pay later service, an escrow service. So there's obviously a space for this, and it's building on Claire's point. It's actually really meant to be where customers are lacking confidence of buying online or through their mobile, that they can get that confidence from a trusted brand like Westpac uh, rather than Afterpay, who no one's ever heard of in Australia, get the goods, get the product, and then tick the box, and the money goes to the merchant. And that's the whole nature of it. And the money is made not just on late payments, it's made on the float of the monies in the escrow account during that period of 10 or 15 days or whatever it is between the two. But I think there's a bigger point here, um, which is having been to Australia so many times in my career history, uh, it's intriguing that 10 years ago, um, the Reserve Bank of Australia and the Australian market was really sleepy and boring and nothing was happening and it was like that i think actually until about 2016 and now we've got volt zinger um 86400 a lot of action happening there and someone asked me today about um how come the uk has built such a strong position in fintech and asked me to write about it and as i was writing i, I realized it was because there was a coordinated approach between government, central bank, and regulator to encourage that capability. And ZOPA is a good example as a very early entrant in the UK to that space. But equally, it's the whole uh, proximity between government, technology, and finance working together that created that space. And that's what Australia finally, you know, the light switch went on in about 2014. Uh, and the RBA changed its position. And that's the reason why you have banks like Westpac, who are really old banks. But having said that, they're actually one of the more um, visionary banks, I guess, that you find down there, um, partnering with someone like Afterpay. You know, they've woken up, the market's rocking. And I like this because in the US, you've seen a lot of people uh, like uh, City and a few others, uh, I think JP Morgan, have launched their own afterpay equivalents um, at great expense many years later. I like this because Westpac has gone, no, we're going to partner and we're going to try and solve this in in a different way. And we're going to try and make uh, it a more rounded offering for customers. I'm generally with you that buy now, pay later gets a bad rap. It's a bit like Wolverine. Everybody thinks they're the the bad guy, but actually they're secretly the good guy, even though they're a bit prickly. Um, The thing that everybody forgets about the buy now, pay later business model is the merchant is funding the 0%. So if you're getting something from ASOS and you're getting it at 0%, ASOS is paying for the like 6-7% APR that you would have otherwise paid. And they're doing that because you are 50% more likely to buy something from them. So it's more than worth their while. So it can be, when done correctly, a win-win for all involved. The other thing that happens is quite a lot of people like to try something for 30 days and send it back. That is actually really, really consumer-centric and in consumers' interests. So we do have to be very careful that people understand what they're doing. And there may be a question about how well do people understand that? Are they looking after their financial health? And I think that's that's absolutely critical. But by this partnership with Westpac, 
that's kind of interesting because now I'm building a savings habit and I'm bringing the thing around from, sure, you were able to get those shoes a little bit earlier or, or that, that bit of clothing that you wanted a little bit early and you had a no quibble 30-day return um, policy, which is awesome and consumer-centric. But also, don't forget to save. Don't forget to build all of that stuff. And I really like that they're using a new platform and they're thinking about embedded finance to do it. This is uh, the type of thing that I think we'll see more from banks is how do I do new business on new platform rather than trying to do new business on old platform? And that model could be something we see a lot, lot more of in the near future. Yeah, and that ecosystem, I think, that, that Chris talked about, you know, you can see partnerships like this springing up that genuinely, I think, are win-win-win. Um, one that I just wanted to throw out um, to you guys, not to anyone in particular, but because we we mentioned it in the, the overview of the story, um, do you guys think there's anything that you, you, you can read into in terms of the uh, Westpac dumping those uh, sales for Afterpay Rival Zip, or was it just some good business sense that they made $337 million on their initial investment of $48.9 million. It's probably part of the nature of the deal they've done with Afterpay in that um, I've been a big advocate of the ecosystem banking as a service model, which I know that um, Simon, you've got written a report about it, 11FS is the report on bits.ly, going back to what you said at the beginning, Ross. But you know, when you look at banking as a service and you look at the ecosystem, the platform, the partnerships, the structures, you have to really roll it back and go back to the basics and say, can, can you be a trusted partner with a company like Afterpay if you're also backing their competition? And the answer is no. Um, on the converse of that, can you be the trusted partner of Afterpay if you're bringing them to your customer base first and giving them your endorsement? And that to me has always been the case, which is if I can find the key players who are the most likely biggest players out there that can bring value to my customers and partner with them in a true partnership model, then I should endorse them and I shouldn't be playing an infidelity with others. I should make sure I'm loyal to them, bring them to my customers first. And by doing that, my competition can't bring them to the customer because I, I brought them there first. I got the partnership first. And specifically, if you put it into a personal context, I keep coming back to in a true partnership between a bank and a fintech, neither is better and neither is inferior. If you think in a partnership in your personal life, you're better than your partner, you're not in a relationship. You're in an abusive relationship. You're equitable. You're equal. You have to respect each other equally. It has to be a win-win. You cannot treat anybody as inferior. And that's where I think that Westpac um, action is coming from. Yeah, I think it's a really nice point. Um, and I completely agree. I think both sides are just fully committing, um, which hopefully increases the prospects um, of the success of this moving forward. And speaking of moving forward, I'm going to move us on to our next story, which comes from AltFi and Concerns. Zopa's long-awaited uh, credit card arrival. So after being granted, Zopa, what? Who? <laughs> oh, don't worry. I'm gonna I'm gonna give Claire the the, the opportunity to retort. Um, after being granted its Challenger Bank license in June, Zopa has just launched its first ever credit card with some very unique features, including a safety net, which allows customers to lock away part of their available credit balance for small, unexpected expenses. Customers uh, set their own personal financial buffer when they initially set up their card and receive an instant notification to let them know that they're getting close to their safety net limit. 
If they want to access their safety net funds, they can do so by unlocking it in the app. And customers will not be charged any fees if they do choose to use those funds. Uh, Zopa are keen to put customers in charge of the finances and spending from the beginning. Other features of the credit card include um, instant freeze and unfreeze, the ability to turn on and off certain spending, such as gambling and cash withdrawals, and real-time balance updates. So Clara Zopa's chief customer officer, it would be remiss if we were to come to anybody else on this story first. Um, so yeah, really, really keen to to hear about this one. Uh, what can you tell us about it? Sure. So I mean, this is a really exciting launch for us. And I mean, as you mentioned, we've been around for sort of 14, 14 years just over and uh, became a bank uh, in the early part of the summer. And I think the kind of big uniting thought about Zopra has always been trying to create products which are fairer, which are really easy to use for customers and which fulfill an unmet consumer need. And this is what we've been trying to do with our credit card. Um, As you mentioned, there's a reasonable amount of data which talks about customers in the UK not feeling comfortable being able to be in control of their credit, not necessarily understanding their credit limit. And so what we've tried to do with the card is to address that group and put them in better control of their finances through the types of features that um, that Ross you touched on in terms of the safety net which is really new and different within the market um, and balance updates but also through the way that the card is structured as a product so uh, making sure for example that our real rates technology that we use on loans gives people a lot of transparency over the deal that they're getting, uh, not using introductory offers that go up very quickly and stripping out some of the fees, like, for example, the over limit fees in order to give people a really sort of clear eyed view of, of the product and, and how uh, it will operate for them. Yeah, the, the, the pricing is an interesting one, isn't it? And I think you've got a credit card industry that, you know, typically makes a lot more of its annual revenues from punitive fees and charges than it, it probably should. Claire, I think it's 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 quite obvious from what you've said and and you know what what your CEO has said that you know you guys that see see that the credit card market is needing sort of revolutionising. And I think what's nice is when you hark back to the previous story, um, the the natural comparison to buy now pay later is often credit cards. But it feels like what what you're saying is that you see the role of credit cards evolving probably into the future. I hope so. I mean, I think touching on buy now, pay later, I I think, you know, Simon mentioned that it can be a virtuous circle for customers. And that is absolutely the case when people manage that well. Um, I think in other circumstances where it's not managed well, then sometimes, you know, structured uh, loans, which obviously Zopa offers or a credit card can be um, can be more helpful. I think in this case, the key thing for us is really putting customers in charge of that decision and helping them to understand the structure of the product, uh, how best to use it and to get the most out of it. So we have features in the app, for example, like the to-do list, which when you set up your card kind of talks you through some of the actions that might help you to get the most out of the features and, and how to best kind of uh, utilize it within your spending so it's really about putting the customer in control and helping them to make the best product decisions just so i understand claire it sounds a little bit like pfm on credit card or is it more than that yeah it is so i think uh the way that the safety net for example works is that you can actually set aside a percentage of your available credit uh limit and lock that away 
so that actually all of your notifications will show the lower amount as your maximum. And I think what that does is firstly, um, helps the customer to avoid going over limit. But it also means that for those who are wanting to increase their credit score, for example, it helps to manage utilization. So it's a real kind of first to market feature. Um, and similarly, with the balance notifications that also look at how much limit you have left, that's a really big gap for a lot of people because real time uh, credit limit updates don't really exist in the market. And so that helps people to make decisions in the moment about how much they can afford to spend, especially on more spontaneous purchases. So I think it's much more immediate and much more linked to your um, personal product, I guess, than potentially um, some PFM elements are. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, um, there's some incredible research that shows that only 20% um, of Brits actually know how much their limit is on their card. So when you consider it in that context, those types of, of tools are um, incredibly powerful. Um, you know, Zopa, you guys have done some research that reveals that 17% of Brits surveyed don't believe that they have even the most basic tools to manage their credit cards efficiently. So Sai, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that probably none of those statistics have actually surprised you all that much. Have you ever used credit cards in the UK though? I mean, like the the service you get on the most of the apps, the service you get on most of the websites is worse than the current account service because typically it's either provided by somebody else or it hasn't had as much investment or it's kludged into the main app in some way. Uh, it, it's sort of, in the UK, it's very much secondary, whereas in the US, you know, the credit card is is more primary and more top of wallet because you know you get people that are much more rewards focused. And, and exactly as Claire's saying, you've seen uh, historically in the US, People have been quite successful at using credit cards in the middle income segment to get rewards, and you know you can really build a virtuous circle there. Is it's part of a good um, good financial management of the household. And now what we're seeing is this um, kind of uh, kind of uh, mass uh, kind of play, and even the subprime plays that are not about tricking people, but the opposite, which is um, a number of like Chime launched their credit builder product. Apple has a credit builder product. How do I uh, inform and educate, but also give you value now and take you on that journey? Uh, it's interesting that Gen Z tends to see credit card as like cigarettes and buy now, pay later as like jewel pods. Actually, that's not true. They're all more or less healthy and or not healthy, depending on how you use them and i think that's the art of great product design is helping encourage users towards better outcomes for them and that's something that the fca really looks for and the regulators really look for good product design can relate to good outcomes for users so long as you're helping them along that way but here's an interesting point and i'll be interested to see what claire and simon has to say on this because i got some stats through uh, last week and someone asked me, could I explain what's going on here? Which is in the US, there's been a massive movement towards use of debit card away from credit card since March with the coronavirus lockdown pandemic. My answer was that because it's so bad at knowing your credit card balances and people are really worried about exposure to loans and credit, that they're moving towards debit because they want to have more control over their money. It kind of reminded me of a comment made a few years ago in Ireland um, that people much preferred to use prepaid cards because they just knew that could limit how much they were doing. And so they would load the balance, they would spend the money. When the money was gone, it was gone. And that's a much nicer way, and particularly because it's not linked to any account, it's just a prepaid card, that that felt much more comfortable for young people in particular. 
So do you think there's going to be a, a movement to, to use more credit or based on current trend, there's a movement to use more debit? I mean, I, I think it's an interesting one because I agree that potentially in the last few months, behaviours have changed. I think overall there has been an increase in the total amount of credit taken in the UK is my understanding. And I also think that um, people generally behave differently depending on their outlook. So uh, to your point, Chris, you know, some people are very uncomfortable with using credit and would always want to, as, as they would see it, live within the means their means on a month-by-month basis. And some people um, are very comfortable using credit. So I do think there's a big segmentation. Um, I think that we are also seeing data that through the pandemic, people have become a bit more conservative. They've obviously also had more chances to save um, and less day-to-day outgoings. And I think that, you know, possibly the trend that you're touching on of people using more debit payments is because of that. So people have had maybe a bit less stress on their day-to-day spending than they would have otherwise had and therefore less need for credit. I think that in reality, you know, I think we've touched on it a few times, um, responsible use of credit can obviously be really helpful in building your credit score um, and is actually one of the things that um, banks or other providers will look at when they're determining whether to lend to you for you know, a whole plethora of reasons. So I think it can be a positive, but again, I think it comes back to how customers manage that. And our goal at Zopa is really to give people the absolute best shot of doing that in a way that's helpful to them rather than than unhelpful. Yeah, and I know you guys said at launch, Claire, that the um, kind of teased us a little bit saying that the features that were announced at launch is just the start. And I'm sure you guys um, have a long list of, of great features sort of geared towards doing exactly that that we can look forward to in the future. Absolutely. <laughs> look forward to telling you about them in the future. I'm already excited. Um, <laughs> All right, I am going to move us on to our final story of this segment. The story itself comes from Finextra and concerns UBS investing $200 million in fintech startups. So UBS is to invest $200 million in fintech startups through a new venture fund called UBS Next, which will primarily pursue direct investments into early stage fintechs and other relevant tech companies. UBS Next will be funded exclusively by UBS and will be managed by a dedicated tech venture investment team. In addition, the bank has also entered a partnership with Anthemis to help identify up-and-coming fintech startups and boost deal flow. Uh, UBS Next will boost the bank's engagement with the startup ecosystem and put it at the forefront of new technological breakthroughs in public cloud, microservices architecture, and AI. So, Chris, I'm going to come to you first on this one. What were your thoughts when you read this one? Well, you kind of missed one of the key parts of that build-up, which is a new chief executive. Uh, Ralph Hammers is joining UBS from ING. And Ralph Hammers is um, meant to be a digital superstar um, because ING moved into turbocharged digitalization, as I have highlighted in a book called Doing Digital. Did I mention that? Um <laughs> And <laughs> I know it's terrible. Chris, you're such Sorry. A <laughs> so such a cheese ball, man. <laughs> you should hear my dad jokes. Yeah. No, what do we want? Me. Cryptocurrencies. When do we want them? Bit by bit. Anyway. Oh, um, Ouch. Sorry, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> but Sergio Amato, who was the previous chief executive, had to rescue UBS from almost a complete collapse from the meltdown of 2008. He became chief executive in 2011. And uh, he actually stabilized the bank with a critical focus on wealth management. 
and private banking and moving out of the investment banking marketplace. Uh, reconstructed the bank so it's actually delivered the best results it's ever had in the last few years. Um, he's leaving on a high and moving into other ventures. Uh, Ralph's coming in, and I don't know whether the fintech um, venture capital unit uh, was his idea or was it bubbling before. I, I'm pretty sure it was bubbling before, but um, it probably got the green light from Ralph because he's just joining right now. Um, and it's interesting that they're working with Anthemis, who many of us know very well as a leading fintech scouting VC company. Um, they often lead the Series A rounds, B rounds of many of the most successful companies that we deal with today. Um, so I think overall it's 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 a good move. I mean, it's interesting how the markets are reconstructing because the other big Swiss banks, Credit Suisse, uh, today announced they're closing down a lot of their asset management operations. Um, and it's really about banks, I believe, working out what's their core business model, moving into saying, where do we have the greatest competencies? Where are we good? And how can we bolster those and support those operations by scouting and partnering and working with companies that can help us to make those not just be good, but be brilliant? And that, to me, is what UBS has announced in this venture capital fund. How do we make wealth management and private banking brilliant so we get even more business? Yeah, I, I like what you've linked there with the CEO change, Chris, because Ralph did a lot more than just this as well when he was at ING. He set up the ING Labs, which have created a lot of spin-outs and created a lot of new business. And banks' top lines are really under pressure. Um, banks as a sector are the second worst performing after energy over the last three years. Like Unless they do something, uh, interest rates look like they're going to be low and stay low for a long time. The core business model is is under threat. So they need to be investing in growth and growth, not just in year, but growth in future years as well. And this is one of a portfolio of things that you can do to be able to get that done. And you know, Anthemis have been around for quite some time. And if you look through their portfolio, there's some some names that are familiar in there, like Truelair and Tide and Simple and Pipe. If you're in the US, a very, very popular sort of um, new, new lending business into uh into, I think it's the uh, ARR business model, Capital in the US, Moving, Moniz, um, Kaiko, Flux, very popular, Currency Cloud, Carter. That's a heck of a group of people to be partnering with, um, with, with really one strong track record in FinTech and Series A, which is a great place to be. So I think it's a smart move, but it's probably, if they're thinking it's the only move, I don't think we'll, we've seen the last. I think we'll see a lot, lot more. And I think this is going to be important for banks to do a lot, lot more. Um, like Goldman does a lot of fintech investing, but it also does a lot of its own developments. It created Marcus and, and, and. I think you need that portfolio of things that are not just giving you better access to what's happening outside in, but what are you going to do to enable from inside out? And that enablement and engagement split is really, really key. And, and there's a critical point here, which I often emphasize in my blog and in my pre presentations, in that I think there's a naivety about banking amongst technology people in that they think banks are unnecessary. And Bill Gates said this 25 years ago, we need banking, but we don't need banks. And yet banks are still around. They've got a lot bigger. They're still doing a lot of things, but they're doing a lot of ancillary things that they shouldn't be doing. So they got into savings, investments, loans, credit, mortgages, uh, you, you name it, they got into it because they wanted to cross-sell and build their portfolio and get more profit, uh, which actually means you know screw the customer. 
<laughs> in many cases. And that's been recognized by the fintech community, the technology community, uh, the startup community, and it's rolling back. And it's saying there's many, many companies that don't need banking licenses that can go into services that banks have made big, healthy profits on, like foreign exchange, and steal that business. That's what Revolut and TransferWise and others are doing. And the core, though, is that the bank still has that deposit-taking license and governance which has not been taken away. And, and it's, sorry, Chris. Yeah, I think it, you've you've just absolutely hit um, a home run there because banks undervalue that asset because they see they. I think people get wedded to that it's my access to the infrastructure and the plumbing, but that license is really hard to get, and actually, it's really valuable to lots of people in lots of different ways. And in the same way, Amazon Web Services with with their technology went ah. Other people will want this technology. This is super valuable. What if we invited our competition in and the rest of the market and smaller people to use our technology? And I think banks have started to get the joke that maybe it's not the tech that makes them special. It's these other assets like their licenses. Sorry, I, I really wanted to jump in on that because I think it's such a key point. No, and, and I'm, I'm glad you jumped in because I, I, I underline this all the time and just say, you know, banks should not care if they lose their margins and their products to fintech startups or technology companies or the big tech companies in the ancillary services but what they really should be focusing upon is their core deposit taking licensing structure and saying how can we leverage that relationship through working with others like amazon does you know the interesting thing about amazon you know, they've got all these competitors on their own platform. Why would you bring your competition onto your platform? Because you, at the end of the day, you say, Amazon Prime, you can trust us, we'll deliver tomorrow. But if you want it cheaper and they deliver in a week, go with someone else. We don't care as long as it's on our platform because we still get some margin. Yeah, and 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 I really love that point um, about the sort of narrowing or the prioritization of like that landscape and what they want to go after. Um, and I think, you know, Claire, just to sort of round us out on this one, um, Yes, this will help UBS with their own internal modernization efforts on top of those prioritization efforts. It will strengthen their strategic partnerships. And then I guess there's also potential upside from the actual equity investment um, and, and, and how that's going to grow moving forward. Yeah, I mean, I don't have too much to say on the, on the equity investment side. I think that uh, I would agree with a lot of the points that have been raised around how both sides benefit in these types of cases. And I think often... You know, the two sides, the incumbents, well-established brands are pitted against fintechs uh, and are seen as, you know, the, the competition. And I think in reality, there are, you know, huge benefits either in a structure like this or actually even just out in the market of both sides learning from each other. And I mean, I've seen that at Zopa where we've got people who have come from, you know, tech companies, from startups background and a startup mentality combined with people you know that have come from well-established kind of banking uh, and credit card backgrounds and I think that the mix the combination of ideas uh, and that's on a micro level is really really helpful because each one challenges the other and hopefully that's the effect that this will have uh, once these kind of two quite different entities come into 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 contact with each other and I think there have been successful um, successful kind of examples of that I think that it does require quite a lot of change of mindset, particularly for the incumbent. And I think sometimes the danger of these things is that there is, you know, a culture clash. You have to be really 
uh, I guess, sort of aware that you're not just tacking something on, but you're really, truly absorbing it. But I think that the scale of this intent hopefully means that there is enough focus and enough, uh, I guess, willingness there to do that successfully. So it should be really interesting to see. I was just going to add one last thing to what Claire just said, because I'm talking a lot on virtual conferences about the things that we're talking about here, but in particular about this culture clash. And um, originally, the, I used to talk about it as Finn is the parent and tech is the child. And the parent has to mentor the child, but the child wants to scribble on the wards, kick everything and break everything and change everything. Um, but then I, I realized actually where we are right now is the parent, which is the banking financial system, was built for a physical industrial structure and they're trying to become digital and we laugh at them saying look how bad they are doing that but then when you look at the child they built everything on this new fragile digital structure and they've actually realized it needs to become a bit physical we need to move in the other direction which is why they have to try and get partnerships and work with some banks and banks have to try and work with um, some ch children and it's that balance and we haven't worked out that balance between the industrial physical analog and the digital internet mobile we will work it out but we're not there yet and the two are coming together and interestingly for me the two are coming together very slowly but in 2020 we've suddenly given it a uh, warp speed and thank god for that yeah, and I think watch this space, right? Um, okay, I am going to move us on now as we are getting to the end of the show. So just to round up some of the other stories from the week uh, that we don't have time to cover, as always, there is so much happening this week uh, and we can't cover it all, but these stories did deserve a shout out. So Simon, do you want to start us off? Absolutely do, Ross. I mean, the first one is about uh, possible finance, and they've raised $11 million on Zoom, and it's shifted to a fully distributed workforce. Um, possible finance was growing fast before the pandemic hit, and then their fundraising slowed down. Rather than giving up, the company uh, started connecting over Zoom calls with U New York-based Union Square Ventures. This eventually led to USV leading a $11 million round for Possible. This marked the first VC firm completed over a video conferencing end-to-end. -end. I think a lot of them have finished that way recently. Um, and also, that's a big claim. I'm not sure if that's true. Um, funded in 2017, Possible offers loans of up to $500 in a similar to pay, way to payday lenders. But what makes them different is uh, when borrowers have more time to pay back the money in installments and the repayments, those are reported to credit agencies, and that actually helps people rebuild their credit. So uh, let's hope that they're doing that. I think very topical today. We've talked a lot about responsible credit. Uh, it's definitely an area that major VCs are still looking at, is that financial inclusion space. And it's seen as an area that the banks just haven't done a good job addressing in the US as well. Current are now getting very popular. Chimes Credit Builder. Every other week, there's a new challenger or neobank that's looking at that seg uh, segment that is underserved and overcharged. Um, so good on them. Um, you know, Not surprising they use Zoom to raise the funding, but uh, good on them for trying to solve a big problem. And let's hope it is responsible credit. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Our next story comes from BBC News and concerns Experian being told to stop sharing data without consent. Imagine that. 
So the credit referencing agency Experian has been sharing the personal information of millions of people without consent and must stop rules the UK's information commissioner. The information was sold to businesses that used it to identify who could afford goods and services as well as to political parties. The company has been told it must make fundamental changes to how it handles data or face a huge fine. Experian has said it will appeal as they believe the ICO's view goes beyond the legal requirements. And the company now has nine months to satisfy the regulator or face fines of up to £20 million or 4% of its global turnover, whichever is higher. So that two-year investigation found that Experian and two other credit reference agencies, so namely Equifax and TransUnion, did a significant amount of, I'm doing air quotes, invisible processing of data, which means that people didn't know it was happening. Um, this information, which was gathered from a variety of sources, was then sold to companies and political parties and charities to find new customers and build these really rich profiles of people. Of course, the problem is that these people didn't know um, that it was going on. Um, so I think in a world where GDPR exists, this was never really going to be okay. Um, it's interesting because Experian are digging their heels in. Uh, but I guess let's see where this one goes. Indeed, Ross, and uh, the whole data thing is is a super important topic for consumers as well. Um, next story is about Shopify joining TikTok. Um, so the e-commerce giant has launched a one-of-a-kind partnership in partnership with the social media app, bringing TikTok to for business to their platform. Merchants will be able to use TikTok as a channel to grow their business and reach highly engaged audiences. Uh, Shopify says that TikTok is one of the world's fastest growing entertainment platforms and and Shopify says they will start in the US and expand internationally. I think this is particularly interesting for creators already on TikTok to merchandise and monetize uh, their offerings. The whole creator space is super, super hot um, in the US and fintech for creators is, is going to be an area to really watch. There's a really interesting startup called Stir for interest, um, if anybody's interested in checking them out. Um, and Shopify just seems to really, really keep knocking it out of the park and getting it right. Anything that's going to reduce um, the friction on commerce, um, they are the embedded finance masters. So uh, watch them and learn. Yeah, they just continue to nail it, don't they? Um, okay, so before we get into our final segment, if you were wondering why we haven't covered the headlines around this quarter's bank results, uh, they aren't all out yet uh, at the point of recording. So we'll be doing a roundup next week. If, however, you can't wait that long, do tune into our live uh, video show newsroom over on our LinkedIn page on Tuesday, where we will be digging into them in a lot more detail there too. Okay, so our and finally story this week marks a return to something somewhat more light humour than uh, the role we've been on over the last couple of months. It comes from The Guardian and it concerns uh, raccoons breaking into a California bank with hand over the trash being the tagline on this one, which I really like. Um so two, and I'm again doing air quotes, masked intruders broke into a California bank using a method straight out of the movies by crawling along air ducts only to fall through the ceiling tiles and onto the floor. The raccoons were caught on camera by a customer who noticed the heist while he was withdrawing money outside the bank. The raccoons can be seen prowling the halls and sitting at a desk in one image. And this is my favorite bit of this whole story. The lead raccoon holds out a paw apparently directing his accomplice to the next target within the bank. Unfortunately for them, someone raised the alarm and called the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, 
And after a dramatic 10-minute foot chase, the rescue staff were able to safely shoo them outside. The subsequent investigation covered uncovered muddy paw prints on a tree outside the bank. The suspects are understood to have climbed the tree and entered the air ducts before falling through the ceiling tiles and onto the floor of the bank. Uh, it's not every day an animal organisation gets called to deal with a bank break-in, but since the bank robbers were masked bandits of the wildlife kind, we were indeed the appropriate responders, said SPCA comms manager Buffy Martin Tarbox, and that is a really, really great name. Um, Simon, as I was going through there, I, I, I could tell that you were really enjoying that story. Oh my goodness, this is the story that just keeps on giving. Like, if you were going to imagine one animal that was going to conduct a sneaky break into a bank, it would probably be a raccoon. But they'd also be quite noisy about it. So, you know, God bless them for trying to be stealthy and point each other. I love this. This was so visual. But it made me wonder, like, what other animals would be, like, trying to sneak into things? Like, you know, cats would be good cat burglars, maybe, Chris? Uh, cats, rats, bats. Um, but Anything that rhymes, basically. Exactly. But <laughs> uh, apparently w w when they tracked down the raccoon's prints, they discovered they were brothers called Al and Bugsy. Oh, yeah, you went there. That's a reference for the older folks. <laughs> Thanks, dad jokes. Yeah. I just don't know how to move on from there. Yeah. Um, Claire, did you not love this one? What are your thoughts? I did love it. I mean, who doesn't love an animal story in these dark times? Could only have got better if there was some sort of YouTube video as well, I think. Hey, doom, gloom, and now we got raccoons. <laughs> oh. Shout out to producer Laura for that one. Sorry, I had to step on it, Ross. Yeah, oh, now who's doing the fun. dad jokes? Excuse me. It, it, it's actually a Laura joke. Producer Laura is oh. the master of groany jokes. Really, mum jokes, dad jokes, what raccoon jokes, whatever. Producer Laura is apologising if you're listening, um, but she loves a good word joke. So there you go. Oh, that was terrific. Um, it's not actually the first time that we've uh, we, we we've covered animals on this show in a in a sort of financial services context so um on episode 425 we covered the story of an angry rooster who attacked people outside of an atm in louisiana uh, to the point where the police were genuinely called and the the rooster actually absconded obviously predicted the imminent arrival um of the police and actually even further back um in episode 277 uh, we cover the story of a rat inside an ATM in India that ate nearly $20,000 worth of cash. I mean, banking and, and, and animals just, just don't really go together, do they? That's why I was kind of going with, like, what animals? Claire, do you, could you see any, any sneaky animals getting into banks next? What's it going to be? I mean, the obvious one's got to be a cash cow, but I feel like it'd get caught on CCTV quite quickly. So uh, maybe not that stealthy. Yeah, could you imagine a stealthy cow? That'd be amazing, <laughs> wouldn't it? Like uh, walking upside down in a bank branch, just befuddled by how it got there. It was, it's just a fantastic image. It, it, it takes the bull in a china shop. Um, to well, a I'll, level, I'll tell you a personal it? story, which is we just got a puppy, uh, a Labrador, and he's very sweet. His name is Ziggy. Um, Shout out to Ziggy. Well, I said Ziggy Stardust because I'm a Bowie fan. Um, but basically, we bought him a load of dried dog food and put it in the garage and then uh, discovered today lots of bite marks in the dog food in the garage, which I thought was the dog, and discovered it was two rats that were living in the garage. So, you know, these rats get everywhere, as do the cats, the bats, and the raccoons. Listen, I cannot think of a more succinct way to wrap up this 
evening's show. So I'm going to leave it there. Um, I'm going to say thank you so much to all of our guests. And why don't we go around the virtual table and you guys can give out your info in terms of where people can find out more about you. So Chris, let's start with you. I'm very difficult to find. I'm Chris at thefinancer.com. Excellent. Yeah. Again, nice and nice, short and sweet. I like that. Uh, Claire, what about you? Uh, thanks very much for having me. First of all, uh, you can find me obviously on the Zopa website, Zopa.com, um, but also on Twitter. Uh, I'm a fairly infrequent tweeter, but a very kind of uh, keen, uh, I guess, lurker, you might call me. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's that's the main ways. Awesome. And Claire, it's been an absolute um, pleasure having you. Please do come back as Thank often you. as you like. Um, Simon, over to you. At SY Taylor on Twitter or email me simon at 11 fscom or do check out bit.ly forward slash banking as a service. Absolutely do. And as for me, you can find me, Ross Gallagher, on LinkedIn or at RossGallagher07 on Twitter. And thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, please do subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It really does help us to make it better and it helps others to find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider, or just go ahead and email podcast at 11FS.com. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Goodbye.